If you are able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, starting with the um, last verse. I'm Colleen Kokenauer. Happy to be reading God's word with you. Matthew 16, the very last verse, and then we'll continue. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. You would uh, pray with me. I need God's help this morning. I don't know about you, but I do. So, Father, we come to you again, once again in prayer, requesting your divine assistance for uh, this time this morning that we're opening up your word and seeking to understand uh, why these few verses are here and what they mean, and more importantly, what they mean to us and what you're trying to say to us this morning. So, God, would you speak to us? Would you send your spirit to open up our hearts 
and enlighten us and illuminate your word to us so that we, um, distracted and feeble-minded and um, people with priorities other than what you want this morning, Lord, would you just press all those things away and allow us to hear from you this morning? Come and speak to us. We invite you. We pray. We need you. I need you to speak through me this morning. And so would you do your work in our midst? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his glory. Amen. Well, I want to give a big thank you, shout out to AJ Myers for uh, stepping in last weekend and preaching, uh, and that gave me the opportunity to be freed up to fully engage in the elder retreat that we had last Friday and Saturday. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later, but in short, it was a really good and encouraging time. And I think all five of the guys would say, yeah, it was good, encouraging, and we felt like God met us there. Um, We were up at Joe and Sharon Stancamp's place. If you've never been up there, it's on the top of the mountain. <laughs> it's up at Jasper Knowles at the end of the Prineville Reservoir. You can see the reservoir and see, you can see a lot from up there, but it really felt like we were on a mountaintop of sorts, both physically up there and also spiritually. And AJ mentioned this last week, but you've, you've probably had a time in your life where you, you feel like you've been on the mountaintop, right? You've been there and you've been with God and you've experienced a time where you felt close to God or you were granted a measure maybe of clarity. Uh, in about your life. Maybe you've actually literally physically been to the top of a high mountain. Um, I haven't been to many of those, but uh, I know what a mountaintop experience feels like with Jesus. And like AJ pointed out last week, it's one of those, those experiences you don't want to walk away from. You don't want to leave. You want to set up a tent and stay, and stay there, right? Uh, but like every mountaintop experience, these gentlemen, Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus, they had to come down from the mountain, right? This was an important mountain in the book of Matthew, the mountain of transfiguration, but they didn't get to stay there. They had to come back down. And we all know when we've had those mountaintop experiences, like going back to life in the real world is super pleasant, right? It's really nice just to get back into the swing of things. And you now it feels like you're grinding gears sometimes, right? So they, they're coming back down the mountain, and that's where we have the story today, picking up at verse 9. We're just going to look at a few verses here, 9 to 13, and this conversation is an interesting conversation that these three disciples have with Jesus on the way down the mountain. And in verse 9, it says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, implicitly, like the command here is, don't tell anybody about this, and he's commanded them to be quiet before about things like this. Uh, But he's only once told them that he's going to die. And now he implies that by saying he's going to be raised from the dead. And you remember that last time in chapter 16 when he told the disciples, hey, guess what, I'm going to die, and then three days later I'm going to be raised again. It didn't go well. It wasn't a good conversation with his guys, right? Remember Peter kind of puffed up, stood up up to Jesus and said, hey, there's no way that's going to happen over my dead body. And Jesus had to rebuke him and said, you know what? You need to get back into your place, which is behind me. Now these three men have gone up to a mountain where not only have they heard who Jesus is, not only do they believe who Jesus is, but now they've been able to see who Jesus really is. Like this picture of him transformed and transfigured, the Son of God. They've heard a voice from heaven saying to them, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased in him. Now listen to him. 
They've heard this and they've seen this and their minds are still on that mountaintop. Okay, I don't know if they're with Jesus yet walking down the mountain. Their minds are still on the mountaintop and what they had just seen and what they had just heard. And, and in that, you know, you can imagine that picture, man. Here's who Jesus is. We've just seen this amazing thing. And now he's talking about dying again. It doesn't seem to line up. So they ask him in verse 10, Why did the scribes, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, think about it here. They've just seen Elijah, right? They've just had this vision. They've, they've seen Elijah. They've seen Moses. They've seen Jesus completely changed. And now their minds are racing. Because for their whole lives, they've learned that, that Elijah would one day return. And this was based on an old prophecy from the prophet Malachi, from the book of Malachi, which we have right up here, where Malachi says at the very end, this is in our version of the Old Testament, these are the, almost the last words of the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you, this is God speaking, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So these three guys are asking Jesus, something along the lines of, did we just witness prophecy being fulfilled? I mean, did we just see that with our own eyes? Because if so, if that's the truth, then something big is coming. Something big is coming next. If Elijah just came, something big is coming. So they're asking Jesus something along the lines of, are we in the end times? Anybody asked that question recently? I've had people ask me that question recently, right? We'll get to that in just a minute. But, but according to Malachi, what comes up after Elijah shows up? What, what's on the timeline after Elijah shows up? The great and awesome day of the Lord. Okay, now in the Old Testament prophets, and many of them spoke of what's called the day of the Lord, this was a future cataclysmic event. Right, in which God would come, God would show up on the earth, he would come in judgment. And he would judge specifically the great world powers and empires, and he would upend them. And in that upending, God's people would be vindicated. Right? They would be lifted up and their enemies would be destroyed. Okay, and I think in some sense we can relate to these men and what is going on maybe in their minds. We live in a world gone mad. Amen? Okay, I got an amen for that. <laughs> maybe more amens. We live in a world gone mad. Each, each new day there's something on the, on the global scene or a political event that seems to fit into something in the book of Revelation. And, and with real-time access to almost everything in the world... <laughs> On video, we can see so much of it. We have plenty of data to try to fit into our understanding of the end times, right? Of, of when Jesus will come back. And I admit it's easy to get caught up looking for signs. It's easy to get caught up looking for prophecy updates or, or building complex end times charts to satisfy our curiosity. But but the simple fact is that Jesus has promised to return. There's the bigger amen, right? Jesus promised to return, and our hope rests on that reality. But he's also told us that we won't know the day or the hour. And just like these disciples, they don't fully understand Malachi's 
prophecy. And I, I think that we can, I can almost guarantee you that we don't fully understand what is going to happen in the future. Can we be okay with that? See, Jesus affirms what they're saying. He's going to say, yeah, this, you're right. But he also points out that the particular event they thought might be a sign of the end wasn't a sign of the end. So look at verse 11. He answered them, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. In other words, he's saying, you're right, guys, you just saw Elijah, but that is not what Malachi was talking about. Rather, Malachi was referring to John the Baptist. And this is something that Jesus has already told his guys back in Matthew chapter 11. He told them, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Let me back up for a minute because I just, I realize there's probably people in the room like, who are you talking about? Who is Elijah? Okay. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. You'll read about him in, I think it's 1 Kings. Um, he was an Old Testament prophet who, was, who did a lot of miracles and was very powerful and was, was this, um, kind of, he was a man of God who the, the Jews in this day looked to as one of, the, one of the biggest prophets and also because of Malachi, they expected him to return soon. Now Jesus says that John the Baptist is that Elijah. So the disciples, obviously, they figured that out by verse 13, by the end of our passage today. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that John was the literal Elijah come down from heaven and walking on the earth, some mysterious incarnation of this revered prophet. Rather, John fulfilled the role of Elijah. And this had been predicted at, at John's very birth back in Luke chapter 1, where his father is actually prophesying, and he says, And he, John, will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So John was to fulfill the role, the prophetic role, with the power of Elijah. So the disciples are correct. Elijah must come first, but it's really the details and the purpose of his coming that is kind of fuzzy for them. They don't have that down yet. So Jesus tells them, Elijah comes to restore all things. Okay, there's, a, there's a story in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus meets a man who's got a withered arm, you know, an arm that just does not work. He can't use it. It's totally atrophied. And Jesus heals him, and it tells us, it uses the same word that is used here, tells us that his arm is restored just like the other. You might think of someone restoring a, an historic home or restoring a classic automobile. This is the same kind of thing. You're making something the way it's supposed to be. You're returning it back to its proper state. And this is precisely the same kind of thing that Malachi predicts Elijah will do, which begins with a relational restoration. So we'll go back to those verses in Malachi chapter 4 here. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, there's going to be a relational restoration where, where relationships 
are tense or they're broken or people are pointed away from each other, God will turn them, or Elijah, his ministry will turn them around. Now, according to Luke's gospel, this is exactly what happened when John the Baptist came on the scene. It says, and he, he, John, will go before the Lord, again, this is Zechariah, John's father, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, notice that in both these instances, in Malachi and in Luke, there's a turning. There's a turning of hearts towards one another, and there's a turning of disobedient people back to God's ways, back to God's laws and His wisdom. This turning would be the key role of John as he fulfilled this role of Elijah in preparing the way for Jesus. Turning is the idea. Another word for this is repentance. Repentance. So John came to make people ready to welcome and receive the Lord by calling them to repent, to do an about-face, a 180-degree turn from their own life and their own kingdom and their own agenda and their own sins to God. This is all about turning back to God and repentance. This preparation, when John the Baptist came, we're told again by Luke, that what he would do would be likened to building a highway in the wilderness upon which God himself could travel. So in Luke chapter 3, quoting from the Old Testament, it says, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And this is really a, a description of human life apart from God and human life prepared for God. Human life is full of disparities. People on top, way up there with everything. People way down in the valley with nothing. Injustice. Human hearts are crooked and bent. Human relationships are rock and rough. This is the description of life without God, a wasteland through which it would be impossible, at least very difficult to travel, and in which few plants or seeds could grow. And John's job as the prophesied Elijah was to prepare the ground, prepare the way, prepare the soil, to break up the hard and stony ground and cultivate it and prepare it to receive the seeds of the gospel. And the seeds of the gospel can only be received in repentant soil. The seeds of the gospel can only be received in repentant soil. So the coming of John the Baptist, which was the coming of Elijah, was all about repentance. And just in case you don't believe me, let's look at Mark chapter 1. It says, John appeared, John the Baptist appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance, of turning to God for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So Elijah's coming isn't mainly about when the end will come. It's not even mainly about how the end will come. It's about being prepared and ready for the end to come. 
And for us, we look forward with expectation, right, to Jesus' bodily, visible return to this earth. So we're faced with the same question they are. Are we prepared? Are we ready? How do we get ready for Jesus to come? And the simple answer is that preparing for that day, preparing for Jesus' return, begins with repentance. And I'll just give you four quick things that, that this shows here. And the first is a simple turning to God. That's all repentance is. A simple definition of repentance is turning from one thing to another. And we've all, I would say, worked hard to build our lives, right? We've all worked hard to get what we have and, and, and be where we are. And a lot of that we've done in our own strength. But God simply wants us to admit that to build our lives, to live our lives, to, to live for eternity and to please Him, we can't do it on our own. We're not in charge of our own lives. And repentance turns away from this this controlling and needing to be in control, this attempting to live independently from God, building our own kingdoms, turns away from that. And being ready for Jesus begins with turning to God and handing our lives over to Him. So the first thing is to turn to God. Secondly is to be humble. John's preparation for for Jesus' first coming included every valley being exalted and every mountain and hill made low. And the question that comes to my mind is, am I a valley or am I a mountain? Am I humble or am I proud? I would rather, when the Lord shows up, have Him lift me up than have to decimate me down to get me to the right level. Choosing humility now saves us from a harsher humbling later on. And we cannot be repentant without being humble. Turn to God. Be humble. And then thirdly, love one another. You see in many of those texts that Elijah's ministry of preparation was predicted to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers. In other words, repentance doesn't just change our relationship with God. It changes our relationship with one another. The fruit of repentance is healthy relationships. The fruit of repentance in our lives and humility in our lives is loving one another. And then finally, I'll just put this fourth one up there. It's pray. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. But folks, if you put all these things together, turning to God, being humble, loving one another, these are things we cannot do. These are things that fall under the, we cannot do them on our own. They fall under the description of simply needing God to show up. We need God to do this in our hearts. We cannot make it happen on our own. And it points us to this crucial practice that Christians and and Jews before us have, have practiced for millennia, the practice of prayer. We can only be a prepared people to the degree that we are a praying people. So I want to spend just a couple minutes calling us to prayer and I want to spend these minutes telling you a little bit more about our elders' retreat this last weekend. It was a, um, we went into the retreat, and I always go into meetings with agendas, right? This is what we're going to do. And we all felt, I think, God coming to us at the beginning and saying, would you just set the agenda aside and seek my face? 
And so it was a really rich time of us just doing that and opening our Bibles and closing our eyes and getting on our knees and praying and asking God to show up, asking God to speak to us, asking God to lead us. And if that meant just burning the agenda and and being in prayer the whole weekend, that would have been fine. And we we were privileged to spend that time in prayer, to seek God's face, to seek his direction specifically with how, God, do you want us to lead this church? How do you want us to shepherd these people? What does this look like? And by the end of our time together, I think we reaffirmed, or God reaffirmed for us, the belief that a healthy church is a church that is ready for Jesus to return by modeling repentance and embracing our core value of radical dependence. To put it another way, a healthy church is a praying church. And as elders, we feel the only possible way to lead this church, to lead you to be a praying church, is for the five of us to be praying men. And this begins, you got it, with repentance. So the timing for this is really appropriate because, as Jenny said, the season of Lent begins this Wednesday. It's a season that is traditionally a season of prayer and repentance. And to lead in this, we as elders are inviting you to come and to pray with us during Lent, to give yourselves over during the week to pray corporately for this church and for other things as well. So starting tomorrow, we'll be hosting daily a time, times throughout the week of corporate prayer throughout the next seven weeks of Lent. And if you see in your bulletin, there's a flyer there that talks about praying through Lent. You'll see some times, Monday through Friday, different times during the day that different elders will be leading. So every weekday, one of us will lead a time of prayer in the prayer room, and we invite you to join us. In fact, we beg you to join us. And I would say right now, choose a time and show up. It won't be super formal, There won't be a ton of expectation for you. I encourage you to come if you need prayer. Even if you just come and say, hey, here's what I need prayer for. We'll pray for you, and you can go. If you come for five minutes, for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, for an hour, we would love to pray for you. I encourage you to come and join us, even if it's just for a few minutes. And what I'm encouraging you to do is to give up an hour of your time or even more, and let's see what God will do in us. Because he will, and he does answer prayer. Last Lent, a year ago, Marlene led us to a 24-hour prayer vigil. So 24 hours a day on Thursdays. you remember this? Anybody took part in this? Pick a 20-minute slot, pray during your slot, whether it's 2 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon, pray. We did that, and we prayed for two things. We prayed for rain. We prayed for God to fill the reservoirs. And we prayed for God to send his spirit down in revival. And guess what God did in 40 days? He filled our reservoirs. You guys were up there watching it (laughs) happen from like 15% to 100%. I mean, God answers prayer. And if that doesn't convince you that God answers prayer, I'm not sure what will. So can I remind you that God answers big prayers? Now, I'll confess that after Lent last year, I was a little upset with God because he didn't seem to answer the revival prayer. And obviously, I have things in my mind of what I think revival should look like, and God wasn't answering my expectations. But as I've I've thought about this this last week, and even 
we had the wives join us on Friday night at the elders' retreat, and um, Kathy said something about that prayer. She said, you know, it was amazing to watch God fill our reservoirs, but I can see God moving in my heart, bringing revival. I could see God moving in the hearts of others, bringing revival. I'm like, man, did I need to hear that? Because God doesn't work at our pace. He doesn't always do things the way we want to do them. And the story that came into my mind as I've thought of this is the story where uh, four men bring this paralytic to Jesus. You remember the story? They lower the paralytic down in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody got ticked at Jesus because he could claim to forgive sins. And so he said, you know what? Just to prove it, get up and walk. And the man got up and walked. And I feel like when God answered our prayer to fill the reservoirs, he made the man walk. It's like, I, let me prove to you that I have the authority to answer your prayers. I'm going to fill your reservoirs, which nobody was expecting. And guess what else I'm going to do? I'm also going to do the quiet thing in the souls of people that you're not going to be able to measure, you're not going to be able to see, and you're not going to be able to control. God answers prayers. Can we challenge him to answer some prayers? It's going to take work. It's going to take us coming together and praying together, getting on our knees together, giving up our time together. But there is power when we pray. And I believe that power increases exponentially when God's kids come together to him in unity. This was the pattern of the early church. You look at the book of Acts, the people prayed together, corporately. It's been the pattern of the church throughout the ages. God's children gathering together to pray. A healthy church, though, is not just a church that prays. It's not just a church where prayer is one thing on a list of many things that we do. A healthy church is not a church that prays. It's a praying church. There's a difference between a church that prays and a praying church. Because for a praying church, a repentant and humble church is one that knows that prayer is their lifeblood. It infuses everything that they do. That's the kind of church I think I want us to be. That's the kind of church our elders want us to be. That's the kind of church I think God desires for us to be. And because prayer is so crucial to us, being radically dependent upon God, we are not only setting aside special times to pray throughout the week, but we're also feeling led by God to set aside special, a special place to pray. Now, for several years, we've had a prayer room back there in the hallway, and it gets used every so often, Thursday nights, every Thursday night, Sunday mornings, for prayer, but it also gets used for other things, like Bible studies, meetings, different things like that. And I believe that God is asking us to dedicate that little room solely to prayer. Now, that might seem kind of silly to you. Like, well, what does that mean? That's like one room. You put prayer on the door and you're good or um, something like that. It might just seem like a silly symbolic gesture, but I believe there's power in gestures. There's power in symbols. There's power in us dedicating things to God for a specific purpose. Just like there's power when we dedicate a portion of our finances to God and give it to His ministry. Just like there's power when I dedicate a special time of the week just to my wife. There's power in that. It's a dedicated thing. And there's power in us dedicating a space to something that is so important as prayer. So this Wednesday evening, which happens to be Ash Wednesday, and yes, the first day of Lent, 
and also Valentine's Day, if you like that sort of thing. I would invite you to join us as we dedicate that prayer room, 6 o'clock on Wednesday night, to be just that, to be a prayer room, a space set aside for God's people to pray. We'll gather at 6 o'clock on Wednesday. We'd love to have you come join us. Now, there are many reasons to pray, but as we kind of close out this passage today, getting back to the, to the word here, we will focus on one particular reason to pray as we finish out this passage, and it's the necessity of suffering. Jesus explains to his disciples that even though Elijah himself came to restore all things, even he, even Elijah, the greatest Old Testament prophet behind Moses, right? Even he could not escape persecution and suffering. Verse 12, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And if you know the story of John the Baptist, they put him in prison and they cut off his head. You see, there's a human tendency to kill off or at least to yell down or cancel or ignore those who call us to repentance. Anybody who calls us to change is automatically our enemy. The powerful people killed John because he threatened their easy life, their independent lifestyle, and they would do the same thing to Jesus. The rest of verse 12. So also, Jesus says, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. In just a few verses, Jesus will return to the same thing. Verse 22 says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they, the disciples, were greatly distressed. You see, the way of comfort and ease is not the way of the Messiah. Rather, to redeem a broken world, he, Jesus, chose the way of suffering. And to follow a suffering Savior means to walk in his steps. If you seek to live as Jesus' disciples, completely dependent upon God and faith, you will suffer. If you seek to depend on God, you will suffer. It's not optional. It's the Christian life. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. So the way I figure it, there's two options. We can either pursue radical dependence upon Jesus, throw it all in with him, or we can pursue independence from Jesus. Maybe half-heartedly throw it in with him, or even not at all. But there's only two choices. And if we choose to follow Jesus... If we choose a life of depending upon him, even when it's nuts, even when it's crazy, even when it hurts, and serving him, this kind of life invites suffering. It invites opposition. It's kind of like praying for patience. Anybody ever pray for patience? If you're smart, you don't pray for patience, right? Because you know that God will give you things that will challenge your patience, that will put you in circumstances where you have to wait. And in the same way, when we put ourselves in a place to depend on God, we'll put ourselves in places where we have to wait, where we have to depend, and oftentimes through suffering, so that we can learn through suffering not to depend on ourselves anymore. Brothers and sisters, this is where we learn to pray when we suffer. 
And if we choose our own way, when we, if we were to choose the other way, the way of independence, we might pretend to follow Jesus. We might give Jesus lip service. We might even show up to all the Jesus stuff. But in the end, we're really living for ourselves, right? And sure, we'll get some of the stuff in this life. We'll, we'll have a nice life, perhaps. We'll probably avoid some suffering, but surely we will not avoid all suffering. And when he does come back, if this is what we choose... Will this count as being ready? And what will we do when suffering does come? How will we get through it if we're only depending on ourselves? Because the, the first way, the way of Jesus, the way of radical dependence on Him will actually foster perseverance through suffering. It will foster strength through suffering. If you seek to depend on God, you will gain the strength. You will be given. You will receive the strength to persevere through suffering. Friends, if we can't even fathom praying for an extended amount of time, whether it be 30 minutes or an hour, if we can't even fathom that without getting bored or thinking we have something more important to do, how will we be prepared to endure real suffering? How will we persevere when we're pushed to our physical limits? Folks, pursuing a life of repentance and radical dependence upon God will require suffering. And without suffering, we will never fully realize our need for God. And if we don't realize our need, how will we be ready? A call to pray is a call to suffer. It's a call to die to ourselves and our preferences and our priorities. To willingly give ourselves and our time and our energy and our attention, our emotions, our present and our future, all of it right into God's hands. To trust that an hour spent in prayer is worth more than an hour spent on social media or an hour spent in front of the TV watching football, or reading a book, or even playing with your kids or grandkids. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad in themselves, but if we use them as an excuse to neglect prayer, we're missing out. We're missing out both now and in the future. And I think I could sum up my point in this way, and I know you're sitting there wishing, I wish you would sum up your point. And be done. The way of Jesus is a way that requires suffering, and it's also a way that requires prayer. So don't wait until suffering comes to learn to pray. Praying isn't easy, it requires a little suffering now so that when real suffering comes, we will be ready. And now we come and we remember the suffering of our Lord and Savior, our King, Jesus. And we get to remember that through the gift of His Supper, the table, where we see in this little bread and we feel, we touch, we taste the reality that Jesus, taking on flesh, learned to suffer and suffered fully and completely and went to the cross for us on our behalf for our sakes. So we take that bread and we remember His body broken for us we remember his blood poured out for us. This morning we're going to take communion together. 
So I'm going to invite you, while we have a little bit of music, to come up and grab the elements, grab a piece of bread and a, and a cup of juice. Take those back to your chairs, take those back to your pews, and if you would, just hold on to them. Prayerfully consider what God is saying to you this morning, and if that's bringing you to a place of, of repentance, confession, whatever that is, be with God, meet with God during this time, and then when everybody has theirs, we'll come back together and I'll lead us through taking them together. Come and partake. <clears throat>